Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Kokoro Movement Podcast. On this episode, we have Dr. Mitch Peretz. He is a doctor of chiropractic and an applied kinesiologist based out of Boulder, Colorado. He's one of my most important mentors, one of the smartest people I've ever talked to in my life. I am honored to bring some of this guy's knowledge to the world. And without further ado, Dr. Mitch Peretz. questions okay. uh, just to get our brain firing mainly my brain so I can keep up with you <laughs> uh, so the first one is uh, what was the first car you ever owned what was the first car I ever owned it was yeah. a Chevy Chevy Impala <clears throat> right on what's your uh, favorite place to travel to my favorite place to travel to back home to New York City okay and then uh, what's the most ridiculous injury you ever got? Uh, what do you mean by ridiculous? <laughs> so <laughs> slipping in the shower, uh, tripping on the dog. Uh, accidentally oh, I, I've, had, I've had way too many to pick a number one. Way too many, huh? Yeah. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite book? My favorite book. Oh, that's a tough one. Uh Probably Archetypal Psychology by James Hillman. Archetypal Psychology by James Hillman. Now, is it pretty dense? Uh, yeah, it's a brief book, but okay. it's quite intense and elaborative in uh, under, underlying, you know, in regards to the underlying subject of archetypal psychology, which is a specific type of field within Jungian psychology. Right. Cool. So uh, let's give everybody kind of a quickish rundown of your origin story because you're a chiropractor is that correct yes i am and then you specialize in applied kinesiology right yes okay I do. so yeah yeah let's go ahead and uh, give everybody a rundown of what got you interested in chiropractic and then how you uh got into applied kinesiology and the like well i, I kind of fell into chiropractic actually um coming out of college i only had a degree in biology and i was kind of fascinated by human anatomy. Uh, at the same time, though, I had no thoughts while in school about becoming a practitioner of any sort. But as things evolved, I realized, A, I wanted to be my own boss. I did not want to go into the traditional nine-to-five working world. Right. And so I was left with, excuse me, <coughs> and seeing physical therapy or chiropractic seemed to be the two best avenues for me to travel. Uh, at that time, uh, chiropractic offered me the opportunity to be my own boss. 
In those right. days, a physical therapist was strictly under the jurisdiction of an MD. Right. So that's what happened. And the irony was I had never been to a chiropractor in my life. Uh, even in my first trimester of school, when we were supposed to find clinicians, I didn't even find one. And then starting my second trimester, a friend of mine uh, asked me to attend a seminar with him. Yeah. And that was uh, sacro-occipital technique, otherwise known as SOT. And the founder of that approach, um, Major Bertrand Dijonet, was teaching it, and it blew me away. Yeah. The, the notion that you can actually use the body as a diagnostic tool to not only assess it, but then treat it and reevaluate it, whether your therapy was working or not, was something I'd never seen or heard of before. Right. That naturally led me into studying uh, applied kinesiology, which I use to this day as the main diagnostic tool in my practice. Yeah, so that um, i got to elaborate on that a little bit because, you know, anybody that's listened to my podcast, I talk, I talk about you just about every single time <laughs> because that, uh, that first DNS course that we took together in, uh, in Denver there at Highland Sport and Spine, I, you know, was trying to eat healthy and everybody went out to lunch and I had my lunch with me and you stayed there and worked on somebody that whole entire lunch hour. And I just sat there watching you just being like, what is this guy doing? And then the next day you, I introduced myself, you worked, you treated on me for a whole entire hour. You used applied kinesiology to determine that I had uh, a diaphragm that wasn't functioning properly and then a uh, multipedis that wasn't functioning. And then at the end of this hour, you adjusted one vertebrae and effectively changed my life forever to where I was like, what the <laughs> hell just happened to me? And what are all these other chiropractors doing? Because this is insane, you know, because I was, I was used to the standard chiropractic model where you just go in, sit in a room for five minutes, they pop you for five minutes, and then you're done, and then you walk out. And so um, that, like, just, you know, propelled me down multiple different rabbit holes that I'm still just kind of going down and probably never going to stop learning. Um, so let's uh, – and then – I'm going to fast forward a little bit to when I brought my then girlfriend, now wife, to congratulations. You. Oh, thank you, sir. That's fantastic. I did not know you got hitched. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of a it was a last minute thing, and we are really good friends with a superior court judge in town, and we just looked at our schedule and her work schedule and my education schedule. It just we were just like, well, this day. And he said, cool, meet me in my house. So that's what we did. Um, you said my best. Right on. Thank you. Um, so you worked on her, and you worked on her for about two and a half hours, and I was just, my jaw was on the floor the whole time. So I kind of want to, because you have integrated everything so brilliantly, like the, the psychology of the human being and then the um, the anatomy and physiology of the human being, and then you're talking about gut and then core stabilization and applied kinesiology and dry needling and all this stuff. So I would like to kind of give everybody kind of an idea on your thought process and how a typical session with you goes, even though you probably don't have any typical sessions. Which, which is true. So 
let's start at the beginning. Okay. So somebody walks. Excuse me. <clears throat> somebody walks through a door with a single or multiple ailments. Some are acute, some are chronic, or a mix. Now, that's an individual, a person, a human being, to use your words, uh, and it's not, say, a bad knee or a low back or colitis. There's a person sitting in front, and so the most important thing is establishing a relationship with the person first, not with the ailment. Right. So in that, it becomes just kind of an open-ended discussion because to make assumptions about what I'm going to do is not fair to myself, nor the therapy, nor the patient. Right. So often in the conversation, parts of their history, uh, psychological history, has an influence or an impact on what they're coming in with. Right. And so I prefer not to separate the two, but to see how they play with one another and what's the interaction. Right. And what I have found over time is that aspect of the interview uh, has an influence on the outcome of the muscle testing. Right. So once I realized that, it just became a standard part of the practice. Yeah. So often the interview can take upwards of about an hour. Yeah. Um, if it doesn't, great. We get to work immediately. But if it does, I make sure there's plenty of time for the person so they don't feel rushed out. Right. The next step is they get on the table. I may do some postural analysis prior. And we evaluate the body entirely as we do focus on the specific uh, dysfunctions that they are talking about, the begin a low back and neck, a jaw, etc. But those things do not exist in a vacuum. Right. So when, you, when you're doing muscle testing, you're actually evaluating the way we do it is different than, say, orthopedic manual muscle testing, which is looking for strength of the muscle. Right. We're evaluating the proprioceptive mechanism of that muscle relative to the immediate structures it touches and in relationship to the rest of the body. Right. So we want to get kind of a holographic imagery of what the person is coming in as, and then we make sure that each of the therapies we apply are reevaluated through the testing, and by the time we're complete with the session, usually every single muscle that was weak before they come in is now strong, and then we try to stimulate the body in a way that could possibly show up one of the original weaknesses. So, right. For example, when we work with your girlfriend, now wife, right. after we treat her, we had her get up and do a squat, a few squats, repetitions, as if she was squatting. Right. In that, we noticed a hitch in her low back, and I think in one of her hips. Right. And so we put her back on the table, and we evaluated that Something was a bit off in the sacrum and something was still off in the obliques. Right. So we retreated it and we got our office to do it again. Once we saw that now the rhythm and the technique was fine, we had her use her imagination as if she was squatting with X number of pounds on the bar. Right. And there's been enough uh, research to show you can stimulate the muscle firing process through the imagination. Right. You are able to gauge, because you had seen her lift before, that there was a change. Yeah. That's not identical to being in the gym, but that's the next step we can do in the office. Right. So the whole idea is to constantly evaluate, treat, reevaluate, treat, and stimulate the body to see if we can elicit a hidden weakness. And if not, 
you know, that's the treatment for that day. And that's why it takes a good amount of time. Uh, I am not one that likes to say to somebody, you need to come in two, three times a week for a month and let's see what's happening. Right. Uh, I'd rather get the body uh, totally corrected in each session, get some home exercises or dietary regimens. Right. And see how much of that can actually hold what we've done. Right. And then move forward from there. Right. And so what you brought to light to me in that session was that a lot of people have this these unconscious psychological issues associated with pain. And so through my own research, um, a lot of people call them neurotags, mm-hmm. where um, if you have... So, like, if you put your hand on the stove, your body associates the stove with pain. And if you are abused as a child or as an adolescent, then your body associates that abuse with pain. And then if you get a job and then they start to abuse you because you, you know, are a good, hardworking person, and then they're like, well, this person will work 50 or 60 hours in a week then you start to associate that abuse with pain. Am I kind of on the right track with that? Or Yeah, that is uh, <clears throat> what I would call basically a kind of stimulus behavioral response to aspects of one's own history. Yeah. Uh, and there's, um, I think a school of thought, there are different stratifications to the unconscious itself. Okay. So it can get a bit complicated in dissecting somebody's history relative to a physical ailment. Right. So, um, you know, for example, somebody may come in with a bad low back. And we'll, we'll simplify it for now. And in that taking the case history, you realize the back uh, started to flare up. Uh, two, three weeks prior, uh, this is not an uncommon thing at this time of year, say it's the fall. So some people can associate that with, you know, change of weather having to do with going back to school. Maybe there were problems in school. Uh, physically, you can see it as possibly a problem with the thyroid because thyroid helps you change seasonally, the body adapts. And then as you ask deeper and deeper questions, you may find out that that's an anniversary of someone's death in their family. Right. So you're looking at possibly a, an unrequited grief process related to low back pain. So the question then becomes is once you bring it up to consciousness, uh, the body will then test differently and start making other corrections. Now, that doesn't necessarily get rid of the psychological influence. Right. But once brought to consciousness, and now gives the patient, the client, the individual an opportunity to work with something uh, other than just a physical modality to help rebalance the structure. Correct. So in the questioning process itself and in the history taking, there are so many variables that can contribute that we can start out with your calling the neurotags, and at the same time we have to remember if something's really unconscious, there's no way we're getting to it logically in the first session or two. Right. That the unconscious itself is making itself known through symptomology. 
to now becomes more of a metaphor or a symbol. Yeah. And we have to work with that, uh, we'd say, at length uh, over time. Now, that doesn't preclude the fact that we can still make many healthy corrections in the person's life. Correct. And the individual may be content enough with the correction, say, I'm, you know, I'm gone, symptoms are gone, and that's great. Yes. Uh, but I just feel with the training I've had, there's always a responsibility I have to the individual um, to be as available to whatever may present itself um, that can contribute both to the problem as well as its therapeutic intervention that can assist the person along the way. Right. So I read a book by, uh, well, multiple books by this, uh, his name is Dr. John Sarno, and he talks about. He's out of, how, the, he's out of the New York NYU Institute. Right. So he yeah. talks about the uh, the tension myositis syndrome and talks about, you know, how the mechanism behind how the body can create pain in order to distract from the subconscious emotions and how if you can, quote, unquote, fix one thing, then it'll just kind of manifest somewhere else. Right. Is that like, so that's kind of uh, what I, I we're would say there. I would say it differently. It doesn't distract from the subconscious. It's the unconscious trying to make itself known. Mm. It's making itself known through the symbology of symptoms. Right. And that's <clears throat> so there's, just, there's, a, there's a wonderful book, for an example, by a dermatologist named Anne McGuire called Skin Disease. And she's a Jungian analyst, and I believe she's in Great Britain. And so, for example... Whether you want to call it eczema, psoriasis, uh, dermatitis, a number of other skin dysfunctions, right? One of the things she started looking at was, well, these all have this kind of inflamed, heated, reddening, scaly kind of uh, affect. Yeah. So in some ways we can, uh, I mean, you read her book, I am taking a lot and just condensing it to the bottom line, what she found, is that... Right. This could be an expression of rage of the yeah. individual mm. at the way they were physically touched, abused, manhandled, et cetera, as an infant or a child that they have absolutely no memory of. None. Yeah. Right? So we can uh, not assume that uh, by making a statement or a fact of such, that's what it is and that it's trying to distract. No, it's trying to get your attention. Yeah. And it does it through the imagery of symptoms. And so it takes a bit of a, an intuitive capacity for the practitioner to kind of gently start to guide the person down that road hmm. without without making any statements for what it is and allowing it to come out of the patient's own unconscious eventually through language and understanding. Right. That's really interesting. So how long have you been practicing the psychological aspect of your uh, oh, practice? Oh, God. I started a long time ago in the field of bioenergetic therapy in my late 20s, probably my second, third year in practice, because it was a body-oriented form of psychotherapy in the sense that by, uh, how do I say, insults and assaults to the infant child developing person growing up that doesn't have room for expression in the environment, supportive expression, gets locked up in muscular armoring. That means the body goes into kind of a tense state. 
right. to prevent one's expression in response in order to protect oneself. So eventually, develop certain postures wrapped around these insults and assaults. Yeah. And by looking at the body, you can determine some basic real psychological realities for this person during the developmental phases of their life. So that was a natural inclination for me, being we work with bodies. Right. And somewhere along the way, uh, as we all take our little journeys, I started reading some of the union work, especially James Hillman's work. <clears throat> and that was a whole nother ball game of things I had never experienced, thought, or read about. So I just threw myself into as much studying of it as I could. And then eventually uh, I decided while I came out here in the past couple of years, uh, I joined the Boulder Society of Union and Analysts in their training and seminar uh, program. Yeah. And myself, I have to put myself through that also. Uh, right. My, my own analysis in order to learn. Right. Because we as individuals have our own unconscious, and if we're treating somebody else's, we have to make sure we don't get caught, triggered, or hoodwinked by theirs. Right. Because it's not a, it's never a linear line. It always works in a serpentine fashion. Yeah. So uh, our own egos can get in the way of the work. Right. So, so that's kind of where just practicing listening comes into play, right? Yes. Instead of, and, you know, I'm still really early in my process, so there's times where I, people, you know, call me on the phone, this is what's going on, and I'm like, okay, I know exactly what that is. And then so that's where the manual muscle testing comes in because that's what these tests are for, right? And so yeah. it could you could be completely way off and your body, their body will point you in the direction that you need to go. Yeah. And so... Um, I think uh, kind of part of what I'm getting at, what you're so brilliant at, in my opinion, is the way that we're taught everything is in pieces. So you're taught the nervous system and then the lymphatic system and then the circulatory system, uh, you know, all the way down the line. And then so the way that I was taught in my both stints in massage school is, well, you're working on the muscles and then this is a fascial technique, and then this is... And so the, what I've been learning over the last couple of years is that everything is the same thing. And like you said um, earlier, we got to treat the person, not the symptoms. So we got to look at these people as people and individuals who have a past and who have, you know, could potentially have other stuff going on, and then it's really important to learn all of the systems and how they integrate with each other, including like what I'm finding is really important is the, the psychological aspect of it, because that really explains a lot about why some people would come and see you. You know, for instance, my dad's a massage therapist also has been one for 20 years. And some people, you know, are in these relationships where it's not a very good relationship. So they're extremely touch deprived. So then they come to my dad just to get a massage once a week so that they can feel fulfilled later in the relationship and so on and so forth. Right. So, right, the, the concept of touch is so critical. Right. In not just the development of a young being, but in our own 
maintenance of our own health. And touch deprivation leads to many, many, many types of problems. It really does. So you're right on the money with that. And many of those type of body therapists uh, can tell you stories of how by just working on the tissues, they release certain types of emotional responses. Right. And sometimes the individual on the table has no idea what's going on. Right. But this is what's coming up. Right. That's how let's just know that the body has a cellular memory of its history. Right. And so by certain types and qualities of touch and certain types of tissue work, these things find a I'd say a safe environment to now let itself be expressed. Right. So oft times the the unspoken relationship between the therapist and the client or patient is truly critical to outcome. Right. As much as the therapy itself. Right. And uh, so a lot of, you know, what I encourage people to do is spend time with themselves. So I, uh, there's a guy that I follow. He's a, a former Hindu monk and teaches people how to meditate and how to, uh, you know, kind of figure out their shit. So that's what I use meditation for. I don't try and clear my mind. I try to figure out and unpack my shit. So, like, what is this emotion that I'm feeling right now? Is it really anger or is it embarrassment or is it this or that? And so, you know, the way that he describes, you know, just being with yourself is if you were to walk into a bar and see yourself sitting there and you wanted to get to know you, just ask yourself those questions and answer them. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that's a really good way of what I call unpacking your shit and dealing with yourself. And so I think a big problem that we see nowadays is that we're in this world that just has potential for constant distraction. You can constantly watch TV. You can constantly watch movies. You can have podcast music. You know, you can be on Facebook, Instagram, like playing video games, whatever you want to do to distract yourself from what you really need to deal with and that's your own shit, right? So that's just how, that's one version of how we become healthier as adults. Right. It's one version, and it's not just distraction from, as you said, your own shit. It's distraction from the strife that's going on in the community and in the country. Right. Right? Which, the, is, the, the, which is immense at this point. I mean, Right. Or your most, family or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. It's the most polarized we've been, at least in my lifetime. Right. Uh, so... It's um, the notion of distraction is not only uh, quite prominent right now, but there's so many avenues for it. Right. That you don't have to turn far and find another one. Right. And so, yes, it does, uh, how I say it, it, it's an impediment to an individual's personal growth, if you want to use it in a simple way. Right. And many of the powers to be want it that way. Right. I mean, this is both a sociological issue as well as a psychological issue. Right. Um, and so I have I have a really uh, important friend of me, and she asked me what I was afraid of. And one of the things that I'm afraid of is not making progress. And I think that's whether it's with myself or in my relationships with people or most specifically at the moment, in my business and my education. And so I think that there's 
there's a lot that's going to be happening. You know, you're you're talking societally in the future that's going to be having people kind of really kind of wake up and they're going to have to deal with their shit in order to survive because it's going to get really hard here, I think, in the future. We're just beginning yeah, to see the true suffering that's coming our way. Right, which is really kind of terrifying. Cause, you know, nobody nobody likes to suffer, but through through suffering, there is growth, right? So that's right. how... Yeah. Right. We would look at suffering as a way for the redemption of the soul. And I right. don't mean in the perspective of what the religious institutions say. Right. I look at soul as a qualitative... Um, how I say it? It's, it's a, there are many qualitative aspects to the soul that enriches one's life, life, and right. deep, and actually deepens one's emotional relationship and psychological relationship with it. Right. And at this point in our own culture's uh, history, I mean, we're quite an immature, psychologically immature culture. Right. And at this point, you can see the regression into tribalism. Right. Now, that's pretty typical of fear, yep. of what we call the primordial consciousness, fear, hate, envy, greed. It also can be a signal, if worked with properly, as type of regression in service of the new consciousness that's being birthed. Right. Uh, but that requires patience, endurance, uh, and a cute eye for observation. And most people would rather just return to a previous stage, which was more comforting. Right. Okay. And uh, and that's kind of where we're at now is people are choosing comfort over struggle. And right. so, you know, one of the reasons, like, why I chose my profession is because I no longer wanted a boss either, uh, similar to you. <laughs> and so because, you know, and now that I've been my own boss for – uh, the three and a half years that I've been practicing, like virtually unemployable because of that, just me realizing that I'm the best person to get along with myself. And so it's, uh, it's, it becomes this thing where we, um, I'm going to kind of rewind a little bit. So I had a, a, a divorce, what was it, 13 years ago, mm -hmm. and it took me, you know, I kind of went off the deep end, so let's talk about distractions for a second, And because I went the alcohol route, right? So I didn't want to deal with my feelings. I didn't want to deal with my uh, overwhelming sense of rejection and not feeling as though I was good enough and, you know, not feeling important. And so I just distracted myself by drinking alcohol a lot. And then after a while, I realized that this wasn't, the healthiest route to go. So then I went the opposite direction and I quit smoking cigarettes and quit drinking alcohol. And then I started training in um, martial arts and that became my struggle to find myself and really kind of stop and figure out who I was through suffering. You know, like when you have one of your training partners and who, quickly become your best friend sitting on top of you, punching your face. You're just like... <laughs> to help a best friend. <laughs> right. So after a while, you're like, okay, this is how we talk to ourselves now. This is the problem. 
and I need to stop this immediately because it's very uncomfortable. So then I am going to do this and this, and then I'm going to use these techniques as a roll. And now I'm on top. Okay. And now I got to step a step away so I can start to figure out what's going on and what I need to do to fix this. And then I started applying that to my life. And then over the course of 13 years, I have gotten really good at it, whereas other people are really starting out. So I can just, like, you know, back to what I alluded to earlier, like when you're, quote, unquote, meditating or concentrating, you are concentrating on what is this problem? Can I solve it, yes or no? Like, how do I move on from here? Is this something that is a true problem or is it my problem or is it somebody else's problem that I'm taking on as my own? So basically question solve problems, right? So I think that um, we as a society are not asking questions. We are just loudly voicing our opinions and not accepting other people's opinions. So there's really no conversation happening there. Yeah, and the questions being asked, you always have the hard part is, is the right question being asked? Right. Because again, uh, go back to it psychologically. If it's strictly being done from the sense of ego, from the sense of the person being the center of the universe, me, right. I, right, uh, the questions are only going to take the individual so far. Right. And uh, to make an assumption that that's the way it goes uh it's a great starting point right and there, there will always come a point where that doesn't work anymore yep and that's another question okay then what's the next uh, step because yep. we are in relationship to life with other people and the injuries we psychological injuries we endure are based in relationship with other people then we can only do so much by ourselves we have to get back into relationship with others right and then see what's happening in that moment. And, right. Uh, recognizing that we cannot always have the answer. We must rely upon other people's feedback. And it doesn't mean you have to accept it readily. It just means you have to ask for it. Right. And then see where that starts to take you. Right. And so I think there's an underlying fear there of a lot of people who are afraid of being vulnerable because that vulnerability has been attacked before. And so it's, it's going to be one of like one of those relationships I feel as though you need to build is uh, a relationship of complete and total trust where you are able to be completely vulnerable with that person and be able to say things without judgment and then receive, you know, advice from them. And that takes time. That's not a technique. Right. That uh, takes time to develop. And at each intersection of a relationship where there is conflict, there's also the opportunity to create what you're talking about. Right. But you cannot get there without conflict within the relationship. Right. So it's conflict is sort of like, okay, the body's expressing a symptom, right? Right. Yep. Hey, it's giving us a signal from the unconscious. Here again, having a conflict. The conflict right. usually is never what the people are arguing about. Right. Rarely is it ever. Right. It's 
Something's going on in the unconscious of both people that are having their battle out and they're using the individuals to figure it out. Right. So that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's a fun approach to watch it happen. Right. Um, um, so I kind of want to move on a little bit because sure. you are talking about, you know, the you were talking earlier about the thyroid and then you were also talking about diet. So then that includes the gut and, and the microbiome within the gut and how varied that that is and how there's a gut brain axis. And, you know, a lot of people, including myself, think that, you know, your gut or your subconscious is your first brain. And then your second brain is the one that, you know, is completely irrational. So you shouldn't listen to it as much. Um, but, you know, I digress. And then, you know, then comes, you know, the lymphatic system, which I have found over the last six or eight months to be incredibly important because people are chronically inflamed and that could lead to a lot of pain and discomfort and even some, you know, psychological issues is what I've been finding also. And then, um, you know, then we go into the soft tissues and how those influence everything. And, and so like, when did you start studying like the endocrine system and how did you, get so familiar with that to where you could tell, start to kind of distinguish, is this a psychological issue or it, are their hormones off or what's going on there? Uh, it's usually a confluence. Okay. However, let's take a clear-cut example and get a bit easier. Uh, a woman approaching or in menopause, right, the hormone level dips that happens. Yep. Yep. We have seen literally women's brains melt, unfortunately, uh, severe depression. That kind of depression is a physiological depression. Now, in the depression, the unconscious may give you some material, but literally at that point in time, putting them on the proper type of hormone replacement therapy can turn all the lights back on for them. Right. So you have to have sort of an education in a number of different fields to start to regulate where your focus happens. Right. Um, you know, there's the old thing about, you know, we say, does the diabetics craving sugar really have to do with the pancreas problem or is it really that they never are able to taste the sweetness in life and this is how they're going about it? Yeah. That's interesting. That's both. Yeah. But the question is, if they're coming into me as a diabetic, great, we're going to get you on the program. We're going to get you on your diet. We're going to get you on your supplements. We're going to get you moving in the right direction physiologically. Correct. But in that first interview, I'm going to give that person as much time as they want to talk about their life. Right. So I can start to see if there is a relationship between the unconscious and what's been happening in their bodies over the last 30, 40 years. Huh. And then the question becomes is, where do I step in and how do I step in? Right. That just comes with time and experience. Right. And because if you're familiar with the Meyer-Briggs test, which is um, a spinoff of Jung's typology, right, uh, we each have a different strength. We're either a thinking type or a feeling type, a sensation type, or an intuitive type. Right. And each of those types bring a different approach to how do they interact with this being? Especially if you can figure out what their type is. So uh, me being a strong intuitive type, I, I get to cheat. Yeah. 
I, I get to make little leaps and bounds and um, you know, little, little gestures and things to kind of turn on a couple of switches or poke the bear and see what's there. Right. That's all. Uh, another type will take it to a, a more linear progression, we'll say. So it, it always behooves us to always assume the person as a totality when they walk in the door. Right. And never make any assumptions, definitely this, that, or the other thing until we speak with them for a while. Yeah. Until we evaluate them. I mean, I've had people come in who the uh, blood tests say the thyroid's normal. Yep. And they'll even have a TSH, you know, uh, just around two, just under two, which is good. Yeah. And the numbers look good. But clinically, they come across as a hypothyroid person. Right. What does one do? Yep. So you have to evaluate them in relation to the endocrine system, the digestive system, and sometimes their norm is not the same as the established medical norms, and they will need some kind of hormonal support for the thyroid. Right. Or if the conditions showing themselves happen during our pregnancy, how much of it's related to the pregnancy. Right versus what their normal situation was prior to the pregnancies. So Correct. we accept we accept medically established norms and normals with the eye towards does the clinical picture match. Yeah. So you can have somebody, let's say somebody comes in with a hip problem and it's been flaring up for a while now. Okay, and you evaluate the hip and you give them all these hip exercises and you do stretching, some tissue work and doesn't change. So the question is, is really the hip the problem, or is that just where it's manifesting the symptom? Right. I have not seen a hip problem yet that does not have an a weak oblique system, weak right. abdominal obliques, ever. Right. right, right. Right? Okay. And if those are strong, then i got to take a look at the foot. You yep. have to look at the gait mechanism. Right. So the symptom is the starting point, and we work from there all the way out as far as we can to gather as much information as we can then we make our own educated guess hypothesis about where to start. And so what I like about the muscle testing is it gives me instant feedback on the table. Right. Right. And then as that goes along, you have to watch to see if the feedback from the body over time matches the clinical changes and symptoms. And if they don't, I know I'm missing something. Right. And I have to go back and reevaluate all over again. Right. And then, so another thing that's come to light, uh, to me recently is vagus nerve dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to, uh, talk to you a little bit about that. Um, but it's, you know, from, from my limited understanding, like a vagus nerve dysfunction could happen from, you know, just having chronic, chronic stress and yes. just constantly being in the fight or flight. Um, so do you, look at that as well or is it just kind of well, you know the term stress uh had be from my perspective only had become so overused that it can apply to any situation where the person feels any experience of duress so in the autonomic nervous system you're talking about the relationship between the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system stress exacerbates the functioning or increases the firing of the sympathetic nervous system 
at the expense of the parasympathetic nervous system, which the vagus nerve is. So the idea is, is it really a strictly a vagus nerve problem? Or are we seeing um, a depression in the parasympathetic nervous system relative to uh, the heightened and overstimulated sympathetic nervous system. So if we can take a step back again and look at the body, as we're talking about psychology, but look at the body, everything's in relationship to everything. So you have to take it into account. Uh, digestion's off. Okay. How much of it is related to age? How much related to um, hypersympathetic activity? How much is due to a uh, thyroid issue, how much is this due to depression itself? And so, though we are taught these fields of, of expertise as separate entities unto themselves, so when somebody appears in front of us and says, I, I have constipation, and we automatically assume, well, I studied that while studying the digestive system and hear all the possibilities, that's great. Right. And it may not be enough. Right you may have to look at the relationship to the endocrine system, to individual right. psychology. You may have to look at literally what's going on in the musculoskeletal system because of the reflexes. Yeah. You know, one, one of the things I used to find that I couldn't figure out originally was uh, women going into menopause, menopause uh, with, combining with a hip problem, and I couldn't figure out why I kept finding liver and gallbladder issues. Right. And when I started studying acupuncture, I was like, wow, but the gallbladder meridian runs right through the hip. Right. So, again, we have another map to help include us into understanding the constant interplay and interrelationships of these different dynamic systems of healing. If I was to give you a metaphor, let's take a look at a spider's web. Right. Now, a spider's web has no specific center per se right. hollow in the center right and yet if you take any of the threads and you pull it gently you will see its reverberations and rippling effects throughout the rest of the web right that's how the body is right there there it's you know the old axiom what is it um something about the soul is a center who's everywhere and radius is nowhere right same thing here there's no specific location for center but everything is in relationship to everything else. Right. Um, are you an acupuncturist also or just dry needle? I was board certified in acupuncture in the state of Colorado. Okay. As well as dry needling. Okay. And I've received board certifications in sports medicine and nutrition. Okay. So then are do you use – so – in your mind, is dry needling and acupuncture kind of the same thing, or do you no. use them differently? Use them very differently. Okay. Dry needling is used specifically to break up trigger points in muscle tissue. Okay. That That's it. That's its benefit. I will also use it in the sense to uh, stimulate the Golgi tendon apparatus and tendons to right. reestablish muscle integrity, muscle firing. Right. And so that's what you used on me for my uh, multifidus issue. Right. Well, actually, with the multifidus, you're just going into the belly of the muscle because it's so small, each sector. Right. It's what we did with your girlfriend when we uh, did the obliques. Yep. 
Right? We put the needles all through the tendinous portions of the oblique throughout the whole area, four on each side. Right. And then we had her activate her obliques with the needles still in. Right, which is uh, increasing increasing the sensory input. Like Right. So. It's a bit sadistic, but it definitely gets the muscle to recalibrate and fire appropriately. Right. Well, so the way that I uh, kind of describe it to people is, you know, like I am a CrossFit coach, and I, you know, if I'm teaching a CrossFit class, there's certain people that have a lot of experience, and I don't need to focus on them as much as the newer people who just joined within the last couple of months. Right. But every once in a while, those more experienced people need a lot of help. And so that's kind of what I equate to as, you know, like, um, you know, putting rock tape on the obliques and then having them fire, or like what you did, which is a more extreme kind of a thing, which is where you put the dry needles in, and then the brain's like, holy shit, what is that? And then you have them <laughs> fire. So then you have them fire, right? And then the yep. brain's like, okay, we are focused on that thought right now. You yeah. Know, so that that's kind of how I explain it to people. That, yeah, that's a good way to explain it. And then you're. And then how do you use uh, acupuncture then? Kind of. Uh, I I use it depending on again uh, what's going on with the individual. Right. Uh, what they come in for. Um, how they present. So somebody who may have a, let's say, a moderate amount of anxiety uh, complicating what they're dealing with, Yeah, I, I will use acupuncture in that kind of a setting. Right. Uh, uh, basically, acupuncture, uh, just different schools, but the way we use it is obviously the needle just breaks the very surface of the skin. Right. And it's placed at certain points within... Diagnosed meridians or specific points yeah. to create an affect where it frees up the flow of energy between the meridians and through the meridians. Right. So if you think as uh, you take the pulses or you listen to the person, that there's a certain blockage of energy flow to, to oversimplify. Yeah. And placing the needles helps remove that block, blockage and allows the energy to flow through the meridian more easily, readily, and the meridians then start to communicate with one another uh, in a healthier fashion. Right. And that's uh, the flow of energy thing, I think, is really hard for people to kind of wrap their head around based on the fact that, you know, there's all the, the you know, woo-woo type of massages out there, but it's... Um, I th well, I've been finding more and more that it's really, really important, and if people want to, you know, kind of get down to the physics of it, we're all made of protons and electrons, and we're all vibrating at certain frequencies, and that's what the the energy is, and, you know, the, that's how our body communicates is with specific frequencies and electrical signals going from one thing to the other. So if that is stagnant, then we need to stimulate it, and acupuncture is one of the ways to do that, correct? Yes, yes, and and there is uh, physiological and scientific data that shows how it works. Right. So for those who wish to challenge the concept of energy, then they can go study how the extracellular matrix of the body works and recognizing that when a needle goes into the system, it creates a deformation in the extracellular matrix of a cell, and that sends signals up and down the body. Right. So uh, 
what the Chinese and the Asians developed instinctively, intuitively through empirical evidence, we now have scientific data to back it up. Right. And there's all these new kinds of thoughts, possibly of a separate system within the body, physical system within the body, that uh, is the acupuncture meridian system now. Right. So uh, science is going to keep elaborating what we have found both intuitively and empirically over the centuries. Right. And for some people, that's what's needed actually for them to say, oh, now it's the truth. Okay. Right. Good for them. Which is, uh, yeah, which is really, uh, it's something that I run into quite a bit uh, in my practice. Is this scientifically proven? Well, no, uh, scientists aren't studying neurological muscle testing. But, but, but the thing is, they have. Right. See, this becomes the problem is, is it scientifically proven? And I ask a patient, usually if they say, what does that mean? Right. Because there's empirical data as well as, quote, scientific data. Right. What does it mean? Uh, yeah. People were taking aspirin before there was any scientific data behind it. Right. And it was working. Right. You know, we so, do many things in our lives. You don't have to understand the scientific data behind your cell phone, but you use it. Every day. As hard every as, day. Some, as hard as you can sometimes. That's right. And you don't <laughs> know how your computer works, but you do it anyway. Right. So I always ask people, how about we have the experience first and then right. critique and, second? Well, so, you know, what's being brought up a lot in the the industries that I follow, chiropractic, mm -hmm. PT, whatever, is, you know, the word placebo and how it has a negative connotation on it. When the reality is, is that if you have a placebo effect and the person feels better, then how is that a negative? How is that a negative? It's it's not. I think when people use it, I will say freely or frequently, as in the way you're describing, right? It's actually used more to uh, hammer away at the subject it wishes to deride to benefit itself. Right. I I think it's a type of envy or a type of hubris. Yeah. That they wish to impart in order to make themselves feel superior. Right. Uh, uh, more than trying to be smart and show, well, this is really a placebo effect, when they really haven't studied the science themselves. Yeah. So really interesting. To me, those individuals, I can spot them pretty quickly at this point. Yeah. Uh, either I, I don't have a conversation for them or with them, I say, oh, B, okay, show me the scientific data behind your point now. Right. That's interesting. So um, Neil deGrasse Tyson was, talking about that very thing where people say they don't believe in the moon landing. And then he simply says, what evidence can I provide you that the moon landing actually happened? And they say, well, this, this is the evidence I need in order for me to believe it. And so if he shows you that evidence and you still don't believe it, then he says conversation is over. Like yeah. I have, and so that's pretty much how you kind of have to act on it. So like, right. and so you want to talk about the placebo effect. You have to, you know, talk about how powerful the the psychology in the human brain really is, right? So, like, if, so, you know, just like uh, what we've been talking about where how powerful the subconscious is in, 
frustrating pain or, you know, manifesting digestive issues or whatever kind of issues that you want to present, like heart issues, cancer, whatever it is, then you can literally talk yourself out of something not working. So, like, if you, if I were to come to you and, and you were to, like, say, I'm going to do acupuncture on you, and I decide that that's 100% bullshit, then it's not going to work on me. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, so, you, can, you can disprove anything experientially if you wish to. Right. Uh, so, But that kind of expands out into your life, right? So, like, because, you know, reading um, a lot of the books that you recommended to me and, you know, kind of, you know, using those books to start compounding kind of my knowledge, like, people can choose pass or fail in their life. They can choose, well, I can't possibly start my own business. So I'm going to stay at this job that I hate with a boss that sucks and with all of these other, you know, these coworkers that also hate their job. And so I'm just going to sit in this negative energy for the rest of my life and, you know, just no. It'll the, devil, the, de- the devil you know is always easier than the devil you fear that you I don't get know. You. Yeah, right. Right. So that there's inherent in the human condition is that fact. Right. Um, there are people who really do bust their butts and try to make changes, and sadly, it doesn't work also. Right. So we have to be careful about formulaic concepts and axioms about life itself. Right. Uh, so for me, as soon as I hear people saying, uh, well, I don't believe. Right. Uh, I already know that the notion of facts are eliminated because belief itself, belief by its very nature, right, is an axiom grounded in incredulity. Right. That's not the so, same as faith, and that's another conversation. Right. When people so, talk about belief. There's no factual basis to belief. Right. So, and then there's also, like speaking on how placebo is perceived as a negative, there's also where failure is perceived as a negative too. And so like if you talk to the most successful entrepreneurs on earth, billionaires, they have failed more times than more people than in their immediate area. And they count their fails as successes because now they know what to not to do again. So it's all about it's all about the narrative in your head, and I believe yeah. that you you know that's a that's part of the that's, psychology too. Yeah, right? That's that's part of it. I mean, Edison said you know uh, it's it's you know one percent inspiration, ninety nine percent perspiration. Right. Uh, in that in that same ilk, you know, we live in a culture that promotes almost at a violent level. You have to be a success, and success is determined by finances materialism and relationship and family. Oh, that's a good that's a good right. kind of segue because like how do you what does successful mean to you? And that's, success, that's an individual thing. I mean for me it's right. just of living living truthfully to my own inner voice, living truthfully to my soul. Right. So it's taken me down many pathways I had never ever thought I would go. Uh I have to say, probably since I started my business, every single thing I attempted to plan and carry out never amounted to manifestation. Right. And while that was happening, I was redirected in another direction, which was not even on the radar, trusted it, followed it, and it brought something else brilliant to my life. Right. So 
I try not to get too new agey about any of that stuff or hokey. For me, it's depending on the individual. They are the only person who can determine success for themselves. Right. So if for an individual, contentment is success, God bless them. Right. right? And outside of it, I say, God, you don't make any money. Look at the small house you live in. You live alone. So what? Yeah. Right. Because right? it's so... You know, because there's a bunch of there's a bunch of massage therapists in town who are quote unquote more successful than me, working eight hours a day, doing the same massage for each person. You know, person comes in, they do an hour massage. That person leaves. The next person comes in, they do an hour massage. That person leaves. They do that five to six days a week, but monetarily they're successful. Monetary, I wouldn't even, I always just say monetarily they make more money than you. Right. But success has nothing to do with that. See, right. the, West, the Western mind works via comparison. Right. Very different than the Eastern mind. It right. works via comparison. So we're always looking, you know, the quote, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. We're always looking in the mirror, other people's mirrors to see ourselves. Yeah. As opposed to looking in our own mirror. Right. And so... Once you do that, you're doomed to fail. You're doomed right. to feel bad. You're doomed to feel depressed. Or you're going to get an inflated sense of yourself, of superiority, which isn't truthful either. Right. So the mind has this way of really knocking us around the ring when we let its activity direct us. Right. As opposed to, as you saying before, how does one get quiet the mind? How does one focus? And how does one experience that process? Right. right. So uh, success isn't even a word I try to use anymore in my vocabulary yeah. or working with patients. I like it. I literally go more and more to what's the experience you're having. Yeah. Now, often that's not something people look at. Right. So let's take somebody who's very involved with art in their lives. They may not make much money as an artist. Right. However, if the experience of that artwork brings them joy, brings them a sense of fullness, touches their soul, they're way ahead of the game. Right. So I had to reevaluate my terms of success is the fact that am I living a fulfilled life? You know, am I able to fulfill, you know, my obligations to my wife, to my dogs, to my gym, to my business? Am I happy? Am I making other people feel better? And, you know, so it's kind of, it's a it's a more complicated thing than I think people uh, understand or choose to kind of look into. And, you know, like like you said, we have... The Western society's vision of success is like all these rappers or all these movie stars or whatever that have all this money and all these cars and all these planes and this big gigantic house, you know, but as we're, we're seeing, you know, that they're wildly unhappy and, you know, we're starting to see a lot of suicides, drug overdoses from these people who are quote unquote, very successful. I would even take it a step past what you were saying about yourself. Uh-huh. You know, my selling my obligations, my being responsible. I would, I would just get rid of the list 
and, and just take it from the perspective of, is this relationship really fulfilling me? Right. Period. Right. That's it. Right. So do, I, do I feel fully alive when I'm walking my dog? Right. It's that simple body response to the moment's activities. Uh, we can take it to the other end, which you know, Joseph Campbell had this great saying, which I keep in the forethought of my mind at all times. To joyfully participate in the sufferings of the world. Right. Now, when you sit with that statement over a long period of time, it'll carry many meanings for one. Right. For me, is how does one engage, fully engage with the activity they're in, knowing, knowing that the outcome that you desire may never come about. Right. And to remove and understanding the goal, the image of the goal is nothing more than the calling to go down a certain pathway. Right. Right? So, again, it's that sense of, uh, let's let's look at teachers for a second. People don't go into teaching knowing with the idea, like, this can make me a millionaire. Yeah, I'm going to be the most successful teacher on earth, and I'm going to be... I'm going to get all the awards. They don't do that. Right. They do it because... They want to help shape young people's minds. Right. And a and whole not, host of other things. And I should say not all of them. There's yeah. some that just so and I think that that is the narrative in your head and the goals that you're trying to accomplish. But, you know, I've had plenty of teachers who were just there to collect a paycheck and you could tell and they were disinterested, so I was disinterested. The question I would ask at that point is, were they that when they first started? That's all. Right. So if they were, then they had no business doing it. But most right. teachers go in, uh, we'll say, optimistically. Yeah. And they start in hopes of making change. And, yes, the nature of the profession, uh, because the way society has changed, it's lost its nobility, but I still think it's a noble profession. Right. Uh because it's not a money-making profession and people want to deride the unions. and this, You know, there's all these ways we live in a culture that prefers to attack and criticize as opposed to discuss and improve, negotiate, and compromise. Right. You know, we always beat up on the other person to prove, again, our superiority. It's a form of hubris. Yeah. So um, the big thing is what's going on is truly a result of the depersonalization, the dehumanization of an individual in a culture. That's right. a whole nother conversation. Right. But that's what we're witnessing, and that's why you see so much alienation, so much isolation, uh, the increase in uh, suicides and depression. It, it's a symptom, right. not the problem. Right. And so what happens is most people get missed. Yeah. Most people get misunderstood, and that further enhances the alienation and becomes right. a vicious feedback cycle. And it's one of the reasons why I prefer to run a small practice, but spend time with people. Right. Because again, I don't feel alienated and isolated. You know, right. If I just see a patient every ten minutes, he popping spines six, seven hours a day. What's going on for me? Right. What's, what's the drive behind that? Right, because it's an exchange. So 
yeah. if they if they feel better, then you feel fulfilled, and then you know that's right. that's but the if, benefit that they get from it, right? But if, the, if the exchange is strictly monetary, right, then there really is no relationship, right. And so I prefer the path of what we call eros versus quote the path of power. Right. Now you need a ha- you need a healthy mixture of both. It's yeah. Not either or. But what we see in our culture is the striving towards power, right? Accumulation and amassing of monies, and that's what gives somebody. You know, it's sort of like you start watching and you watch people interview celebrities and athletes and politicians. You have to always start wondering. Why are they interviewing these people when everything they have to say is so inane and superficial? Right. But the assumption is they at a certain status, a hierarchical status due to celebrity, that they must have something of value or valid to say. Right. The answer is no, they don't. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of an interesting thing to unpack a little bit. So if you... um, Man, that's really interesting. So I was listening to... Um, a podcast where it's a former uh, UFC welterweight champion named George St. Pierre was talking about how much anxiety he would have before he would go in and defend his title in these cage fights. And so the way that he would combat that is he would drive around wherever the venue was and look at all these people that didn't give a shit if he was champion or not. Mm -hmm. And that kind of brought him back down to reality. So, you know, in That's that... We call, we call that relativization. Right. He's so, relativizing his reality to others, his position to others, and recognizing in that moment, it doesn't carry the importance that his mind made up about it. Right. And so then, you know, in that space, he's really famous and really popular, but that space is very minute and not very many people care. Like the old lady who's putting her groceries into the shopping cart doesn't care if he's welterweight champion of the world or not. She's probably never watched a fight in her life. It doesn't even matter to her. And so, and so I think, um, and then going back to the thing about, you know, teachers and ultimately what I want to quote unquote retire into is teaching because I feel as though I can teach forever and is, you know, you can go and teach your own thing. And that's where, you know, I met you at a DNS course and then all the different courses that I've taken since then, these people accumulated this information over a long period of time, thought that it was pertinent, and then realized that there's other people that could benefit from this information and then decided to teach it. And then it kind of rose to prominence within these communities of people that are hyper-focused on making the world a better place, right? And so that's kind of how I think about it and why I love going to these courses so much because if I sign up for a DNS course and you sign up for a DNS course, we're essentially taking it for the same reason. And so that's why I love taking these courses because I connect with a myriad of like-minded people from different professions that are trying to accomplish the same goal, which is making the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And to kind of uh, rant it out a little bit, you know, there's a bunch of people that are really hyper-focused about this country and really hyper-focused about our president and the war on Syria and the this and that and all the the just cataclysm of supposed shit that's going to just fall on the, on top of us. 
and we are focused on making our community better, which then spreads kind of throughout. You know what I mean? So like, the, so like in my opinion, our small little pieces connect people and if we make these people better, then that makes the world better because then they are more willing to be compassionate or hold the door open for somebody or help somebody change a tire or whatever because we have helped them. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah you're, ta- you're, you know, you're, you're elaborating on the concept of pay it forward. Right. That uh, kind gestures have rippling effects. Right. Um, yeah, I can't argue with that. It's, there's truth and there's that truth is in competition with other truths. Right. Uh, and, and that's human nature. You know, right. Fundamentally, we're within conflicts within ourselves and with others. Right. And the potential of conflict is not just its resolution, but is, uh, we'll say, a little bit of elevation of consciousness. Right. Where if the only desire within conflict is to beat the other person, for whatever reasons, right? Then there's no shift in consciousness because that conflict's going to show up in the next round around the corner with somebody right. else, right? So I think uh, an important part is how do you shift awareness of what the nature of conflict itself is, regardless of the form it takes, right? And it's really hard in a world where you have so many disparate individuals religions, ethnicities, tribes, etc. Right. I mean, one of the big parts of history is the conquest of other people. Right. <laughs> Without ever having resolved the conflict that resulted from it. Right. Right. And so and, so, and then it, so we just the keep base, moving on. Just, on just the, look at US history of Vietnam. Right. You know, Japan's history with China. I mean you can just go on and France's history with Algeria. You can go right. on and on about unresolved conflict that festers like an infected wound. Right. And without and, the individual uh, trying to make amends and atoning for what they've done to another, uh, the preference is just to keep moving forward. Right. Well, and, in that case, we leave a, destruction, a wake of destruction in our lives and in other people's lives right and that's kind of where we're at now as a society right like we haven't resolved the conflict within the collective consciousness we are just ever trudging forward acting like that conflict never happened yeah this is not a country known for its self-reflection right i don't think are there any countries that have self-reflection uh probably not in the purest sense, but definitely better than what we do. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're... The notion of progress and progress and progress right. uh, and its titanic forces uh, is the antithesis of self-reflection. Right. And the fallout from it, as you said earlier, can be cataclysmic. Right. And then so that brings me back to the teachers and the education courses that I you know, decide to take it's, and that's a big kind of sigh of relief from, you know, the community college that I was going to trying to get my prereqs in order to 
you know, go start doing different prereqs in order to start going to PT school, blah, blah, yada, yada, and then going to massage school for six months and now continuing my education and expanding my knowledge any way that I see fit is that, like, the courses that I sign up for, the people actually want to teach you that and are passionate about it and realize that they can make a difference in your practice, which would make a difference for people out there. So I think that that's the best way to change the world, right? So if you if you can teach one course to 20 people and then those 20 people work on hundreds or thousands of people and then you keep teaching courses kind of everywhere, then eventually you're affecting millions of people. Um. Yes and no, <laughs> uh, because there's always going to be a, a large percentage of the population that doesn't have access to that, right? Because of uh, finances, right? Because of uh, ethnic strife, because of politics. So we we have to be a little bit careful in our assumptions uh, and literalizing our fantasies about them. Right. There's, there's no doubt that by an individual imp- improving their abilities to help another individual, yeah, doesn't have a rippling effect. Right. But to designate how far along that rippling effect goes, I think that's uh, we should be a little more humble than that. Right. That, that's all. No, um, I get it. Yeah. You know, uh, and cause, because that way we stay away not only from personal inflation. Right. But we also keep away from potential disappointment, harm, and it keeps us studying. Right. You know, the, the patients we can't help. I remember going to chiropractic seminars early on in my life, and I really didn't like him because I always heard people talk about these great successes they had, but no one wanted to talk about their failures. Right. And that's what I wanted to talk about. Right. Because why didn't I help this person? What did right. I miss? Right. And so there's this... Uh, necessity to fail that has a humbling effect that keeps us hungry. Correct. I get it. And it's, and it's not hunger for money or success. Right? It's hunger for knowledge, right? Right. And it's the, it's the hunger that you want to help your fellow man, even if it's only one person. Right. right. I mean, I've had cases where I've had to spend tens of hours studying material I was not familiar with just to help one person. Right. And you, you sit there going, God, I've been studying this stuff. 20 hours I put into this one patient, and they're, a, they're not a good patient. They're a pain in the ass, et cetera, et cetera. But there's another part of you that says, that's what your job is. And not only is it your job, it's your responsibility to that person because you're in relationship with them. Right. And then that – so next time somebody similar comes along, you already have that information, so it wasn't right. a total loss right. anyway. And not only that, but we can't tell the effect – by putting all that time and effort into trying to gather information to help that one individual, we don't know how that act itself helps the individual. Right. We're assuming it's the information. Right. But if the next time you step in with that person and they have a different experience of you in the relationship because you go and did this work, that in itself may be enough to make the shift and not the right. information. We don't know. See, right. That's the part we have to get away from. We do not know. Right. So we have to constantly go by experience and observation and reevaluation. So, how long have you been practicing? <laughs> uh, I'm heading probably into my 35th year now. Awesome. 
see, so that's what, that's what I'm talking about. Like, so there's people like you who have been climbing the cliff for 35 years. And then me, I've only been three and a half years in and I'm at the bottom of the cliff looking up being like, how the hell does this guy know everything? But the reality is, is just like you explained, is you have been accumulating this knowledge over the course of 35 years. And so what I, another thing that I appreciate about all these different courses is you have been studying what you have been doing for 35 years. I get to call you on the phone or send you an email or take a course from you and learn this chunk of information that you have been accumulating. And then that accelerates me up the cliff, right? So then, you know, that's part of what I'm doing with this podcast and why I go to so many different education courses and follow so many people and read so many blogs and so many books is because these people have accumulated this knowledge and it's readily available. You just have to put the effort forth to learn it and accelerate yourself. Right. And in the same breath, as long as we take the position that uh, this is a marathon, this life right. is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Right. That we are not supposed to have all the answers. Hopefully, are the right questions that push us in the right direction. Right. Then what comes about is a much more, uh, much more of an act of grace and learning. Yeah. And an experience. And in that, uh, we start to reshape ourselves. Right. In, in a manner of, lack of a better word, dignity. Right. That we carry ourselves a certain way. And at some point in time, the manner in which we carry ourselves actually influences people more so than the information we can give them. Right. And that that's an important thing to remember. There right. are those individuals who we meet and we just have this uh, type of respect and admiration for them, not based on what they know, but who they are. Right. And it's not based on status or success. It's just when you talk to this person, you feel they really care about you. Right. You feel that they have your interests at heart. Right. That is huge. Yeah. That has an amazing influence. And if we can all carry ourselves that way over time, you know, it, it does impact the collective consciousness. Right. Uh, but like you said earlier, most of us get too busy with distractions, uh, accumulations, and our own personal narratives we get caught up in. Right. Um, so what are you studying right now? Because, you know, like I said, I met you probably two years ago and you were studying more of the DNS stuff. Right. Um, what are you going after right now? Right now I'm spending most of my time studying in the field of Jungian psychology. Okay. Uh, and I'm actually doing writing right now about uh, certain topics within it. Okay. And so that's a, that's taking up most of my time at this okay. point of study. Where that will lead me in a couple of years, I don't know, but it'll be fun getting there. Right. Um, and what um, what books or um, what books have had the most profound effect on you that you would recommend to somebody? That's hard to say because those books are. This is going to sound really arrogant and horrible, right? Those books are not for lay people. Right. So 
uh, if we want to go more more towards in that direction, yeah, I, I, I'm a, I'll tell you who people I'm a big fan of. I would tell most people start with watching the six hour interview of Joseph Campbell by Bill Moyers. Okay, big fan of Joseph Campbell, brilliant man, erudite about um, comparative mythology. Right, uh, because we look at mythos as the background um, existence of everyday behavior. Right. So that's the, he's at a great place to start. Right. Uh, and if you if if you want to stay within the psychological field, uh, people such as Rollo May has done some really good work and books for for lay people to start with. Doesn't mean you end up there. It's right. where you start. Right. Um, some of Young's personal works, like Modern Man in Search of Soul, or his autobiography of Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. Those are really good books. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan, if you want to get more social-political, though um, no, he's no longer with us, the works of Christopher Hitchens. Uh, or if you want to do cultural critiques, the works of Chris Hedges or Morris Berman. Any of those books by any of these guys yeah. uh, are profound in their own way of addressing what's really happening in the de- everyday culture. Yeah. So uh, I start looking at that. So I try to read a real strong cross between the psychology of the political and the social, because to me you can't separate them. Right. At, at all. Yeah. So uh, I would I would start there. It's a, it's a good grounding. And so let's, because uh, you've, we've, tried to get an education course here to Flagstaff that uh, that you would provide and uh, put together. So let's uh, talk about that a little bit and what that would entail. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we, you and I had discussed it in the past. The idea was how to teach muscle testing in a manner that really can provide people with uh, a definitive assessment tool. Right. Uh, and I need to separate that from the person in the vitamin shop putting a bottle in your hand and muscle testing you and telling you you need it. Right. That is not muscle testing. That right. is more akin to using a pendulum. Right. Uh, I'm not against it. Just don't call it muscle testing and definitely don't call it applied kinesiology. Right. So the idea becomes uh, mixing a few different schools of thought. How to teach basic muscle testings to evaluate core functioning within an individual. Right. Because if the core itself is not stabilized enough, then you're predisposing the extremities to injuries. Right. So you don't work extremity to the core. You work from the core out. Right. So, you know, we can create a two-day course where people get a hands-on course to a small group of people because I prefer hands-on. Right. I, I don't have interest in teaching 40 people at a shot. I just – most people walk away frustrated, and that's not the way to do it. Right. So you take a real small group where half the workshop is absolutely hands-on, experiential, learning how to muscle test, and then learning how to use the tools that the individual comes from with their profession, whether right. they're a trainer, a PT, etc., to start figuring out if the corrections they're applying are actually working. Right. And using the muscle testing as its guide. Right. So, so if we start, we would start with basic trunk muscles and some closely related, correlated extremity muscles in the first course. We wouldn't go into feet, hands, elbows, knees, etc. cetera. Uh, we'd stick strictly to the core and make sure by the end of two days, 
people had a basic idea and feeling, and that's important, a feeling to how to muscle test. Right. And once they have that done, usually in six months, if they really are diligent with testing everybody in six months, there'll be some second nature to them. Right. And at that point, it gets easier to move on. Okay, now how do we evaluate extremities? Or even how do we relate the TMJ to the extremities, to the core, et cetera? Right. So you work from the center of the core and you work your way out to the extremities. Right. And so we, we can put together a two-day course. I already have it done. I've taught it before. Uh, a two-day course where everyone really would receive a, um, a thumb drive with all the information on it and all the images on it and all the pictures and all the directions on it so we don't have to get caught up in teaching all the factual aspects of it. Right. And so they can then keep their laptops open with the thumb drive, look at it, and start the testing. Look at it, test it, look at it. And I can go around doing a critique in a small group and making sure by the end of two days people have a certain level of confidence going into the office the next day. Right. And then, obviously, we would do some demonstrations to show how the thing gets put together. Right. Uh, and we can use the people in the group. would probably be the best way to do it. Uh, but they may want to bring in a client or a patient because my license is out of town. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't treat somebody that way. Right. But there'll be enough maladies, <laughs> afflictions amongst all the practitioners. Right. We'll have plenty to work with. Right. So it's, it's not about chiropractic. It's about just a tool of assessment that you can use within the confines of your own professional acumen. Perfect. So all I'm, right. all up, I'm all up for that. You know, we can set it up for the fall if people want. Okay. Make it work. All right. Sounds good, my friend. I want to thank you so much for your time. I appreciated the conversation very much. Well, I'm glad I could be available, Jess. Thanks for everything. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. Got a deal. All right. Bye.